Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. In all our prior podcasts, we've spoken about the varying needs for mental health services across populations facing extraordinary stressors and vulnerabilities. Today, we're going to talk more globally about what might prevent a child from accessing treatment, how to know when a child needs help, and what might actually happen in a therapy session. Child mental health treatment can be mystifying. Today, we aim to provide some greater clarity. As reported by Dr. Tessa Reardon, Dr. Kate Harvey et al., there has been rapid growth in the development of evidence-based treatments for mental health disorders in childhood and adolescence, and the lasting benefits of intervening early are well established. However, poor rates of treatment access have been repeatedly reported, and international surveys have estimated that only 25 to 56 percent of children and adolescents with mental health disorders access specialist mental health services. Unsurprisingly, they noted that children with internalizing problems were even less likely than those with externalizing problems to be given care, meaning the depressed, anxious, and perhaps suicidal child who sits quietly in the back of the room is less likely to be helped than the acting out troubled child who disrupts the lives of others. As Dr. Anya Kaushik and her team write, Half of all lifetime cases of mental illness begin by the age of 14. Untreated, they leave a profound and long-lasting impact on the individual and society. Associated with educational underachievement, family disruption, substance misuse and violence, poorer physical and sexual health, and increased mortality rates from suicide and accidental injury. Given all this, it behooves us to understand the barriers to treatment. Parents are the gatekeepers to mental health treatment for their children, and research supports the conclusion that parental attitudes about their child's behavior and about mental health in general influence tremendously whether that child receives care. Doctors Reardon and Harvey note that parents who perceive that a problem exists and think the problem has a negative impact on family life are more likely to seek help. If they don't see a problem, or see one but believe it stems from a child's character, otherwise that they have a bad kid, help is less likely to be sought. Additionally, Study after study makes clear that stigma is a primary barrier to accessing treatment and that this stigma is real. Children with mental health issues are more stigmatized than those with learning disabilities or physical illnesses. Dr. Kaushik et al. found that children as young as six grasp and understand the negative cultural perceptions of mental illness. Parents don't want their child to be labeled as crazy. They don't want to be perceived as a bad parent themselves. We can't possibly have this in our family. In today's podcast, we're going to speak with Sarah Duncan. Sarah is a marriage and family therapist with a particular emphasis in art and play therapy. She's a clinician at the Guidance Center, where she started working with children in our school-based program. She transitioned to the outpatient clinic where she could work more with little ones and currently offers mental health treatment and support with very young children on site at a local Head Start program. 
Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, of course, familiar with you and your great work from our shared roles at the Guidance Center and our conversations in the parking lot at the end of the day. But for the audience, will you please share a little bit about yourself? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you, Tricia, for letting me join and uh, be a part of this podcast. I'm I'm greatly honored. Uh, so as Tricia said, I'm Sarah Duncan. I'm a marriage family therapist uh, specializing in art therapy. So I got my degree in an art therapy specialization. I'm supervised by wonderful registered play therapist and board certified art therapist. So I'm getting all of that great information of how to support children using those creative therapies and those modalities. Uh, I'm also a lover of dance and movement and art. I grew up doing that. Um, and before going into mental health, I was a preschool teacher. As you mentioned earlier in um, this introduction, um, I like to focus on my zero to five-year-old population. So that's a little bit about me. I didn't know that. I didn't know you were a preschool teacher. That's my favorite age. I love those little ones. Um, so Sarah, I want to jump right in and start by tackling the idea of stigma head on. And what would you say, or what do you say? Cause we hear this all the time. What would you say to a parent who's hesitant to seek help out of fear that their child will be labeled or judged? I, I think that's a really great point. Um, many parents and uh, people I've worked with are have that fear of labeled and judged. And all I can do in the beginning is validate that fear. Say, I understand or I hear you. I hear that you're really worried that your child will be seen as a bad kid, or a lot of people use the term crazy, um, that they you know are gonna be stuck with this forever. And the biggest thing I also want parents to understand is many of the labels, such as a diagnosis, a mental health diagnosis, is that they're treatable or manageable. And um, that's what we would like to do to help support. So when you're given, when a child um, or anyone is given a diagnosis, this can also open doors for professionals to help support in providing those interventions or uh, resources to then support the child and the family um, in receiving strategies to better manage those emotions or brain development, even though having a label can cause a lot of fear and worry. I think it also opens a lot of doors to be able to better support these children. So not, in other words, not owning and acknowledging it doesn't make it go away. Um, and by sort of embracing it, it, it's an avenue to help. So it's a bit of a, a reframe, in other words. But so picking back on that, in my research for today's conversation, I read quite a lot about self-stigma um, is what it was labeled in the literature, uh, facing the parents of children with a mental health diagnosis, that research shows that there's this very pervasive internalized belief um, that it means they failed, that they're not a good parent. Um, how do you respond to this? First, uh, if, if, one of my parents has shared this with me. Um, I would say you are a good parent, point blank, because you came here today to seek services for your child. That means you're invested in your child's life, their well-being, and overall development. Um, there are many factors that can uh, cause mental illness or give a mental health diagnosis, such as a genetic predisposition, but also environmental factors, a child's response to traumatic events, um, and whatever is going on in their community. So I wouldn't say they failed. Um, it's, it's the circumstance, just as if, you know, someone had um, a medical diagnosis that maybe couldn't have been prevented, or maybe it could have, but you can seek treatment and help. That's the same way with mental health uh, diagnoses. You know, I one of the things that we encounter a lot is 
parents simply not understanding the behavior of their child and not knowing how to differentiate between uh, a bad kid. Um, I've certainly had so many kids on my caseload that were referred by schools and the parents just saying, he's just a bad kid. Um, and, you know, or they're going through a phase, they're being moody. And then, you know, if something terrible happens, which it can, we look back retrospectively and see all these signs. And we think if only, um, I'll give a somewhat extreme example, perhaps, but for several years, I sat on a county committee called the Child Death Review. <laughs> And it was as horrible as you might think it would be, but our mm -hmm. job was to examine all the child deaths in the county, um, particularly any related to mental health. And so mm -hmm. often it, it's tragic. You can go back and with, you know, the 2020 uh, perspective of hindsight and say, mm -hmm. there's so many signs, if only so what would you say you're speaking to a room of parents? How can a parent know when to bring their child to treatment? What signs should they look for? Yeah, I think it can be really tricky to tell the difference between maybe a developmental milestone, such as the terrible twos. Even then, uh, the terrible twos can be uh, prevented or worked with. Uh, knowing development and those strategies, but it, it's really um hard for parents in, in that mindset of, if only I knew, if only I was more attentive, if only I understood these things uh, about my child um, and how they were feeling um, and what they were saying, then something would have changed. And that could be the case, but it's also not good to dwell in those thoughts. I think when you're looking for signs or when parents are looking for signs, I refer to milestones, especially working with such a young population. Um, I focus on are the child's milestones not being met? Um, are the children, these children withdrawing or showing more aggressive behavior than normal? Their mood, has they have they gotten a sudden increase in irritability or uh, see more isolated and, and sad. Um, also in the comments that children make, you know, you can hear I'm bad, I'm not good enough um, in their own words, and, and they do it in creative ways too. So it's really important to, to not only hear what the child says, but listen to the phrasing and, and what they might mean by that. Um, and as an art and, and play therapist looking at their play and their art. I don't want to pathologize um, all play and all art and say, you know, if they draw this, this, that means, you know, if they draw a skull and crossbones, that means they're really depressed. It could, I, you know, I don't know, but um, it could also mean they watched a pirate TV show. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> exactly. What are they? What so how's a parent supposed to know? <laughs> right. <laughs> It's true. Yes. How's the parents supposed to know? Um, and that is difficult. And I think, you know, asking other people in their, in their village, so to speak, in their community, have you seen a difference in my child's behavior? I'm noticing these things such as uh, my child has gotten more aggressive. It's been harder to transition from school to home. They're telling me um, they don't want to do these certain things that they used to. Those would be the signs. And I would suggest for parents to really reach out in their social supports to uh, look for those signs. So what I'm hearing really is that it's a change in mood or behavior or um, interest in life. And you're looking for, for changes. Yes. Um, yeah. And to be open and receptive to those. Yes. And be curious. So, you know, it isn't surprising to us in, in the field, um, but I've also read over the years quite a lot about how the child who's uh, quietly suffering is much less likely to get treatment than the one that acts out all over the place, who's throwing toys, who's getting kicked out of preschool, who, you know, mm -hmm. 
stabbing the teacher with a pencil. Um, I've said in prior episodes that I actually consider that acting out to behavior to be quite adaptive. Say, Mm -hmm. listen to me. Um, But in particular, how can parents identify that quietly suffering child? Sometimes you're exhausted. And it's, it's nice if the kid just sits in a corner for a bit, right? But how can you identify that it's, it's beyond the norm and you might uh, need to be concerned? Yeah, I think the quote unquote good kids get pushed to the side in preschool, in elementary school, middle school, high school. Um, you know, they're doing well, right? They're doing well academically is usually what I, what I hear from families or they um, are good with friends, but they might not see underlying uh, potentially anxiety or worries that they might have. Um, I think some other signs like we were talking about earlier is withdrawing, not being as invested in relationships, in what they've enjoyed. Uh, I would also suggest, you know, looking at signs of, does the child seem like they're looking around a lot um, or, you know, worried about what's going to happen next or asking a lot of questions or things that are indicating low self-esteem in their sentiments and statements. Same again, I would look in art and play. Has that changed? Um, Do they want to play on their own? Uh, How do they, you know, repetitively create an image that you would, you would also like to explore and and get more information about? You know, you work specifically with very little ones. And I hear a lot when I talk about our services at the guidance center that little ones, let's say a two-year-old perhaps, couldn't possibly need and benefit from mental health care. Um, I remember once uh, I was talking to the husband of a friend and saying how we did infant mental health and that we do have a zero to five population. And he actually... uh, said that was akin to fraud, um, that Mm. there's no way a two-year-old could need, number one, and number two, benefit from mental health treatment, um, that we were doing chicanery of some sort. Um, So working with the little ones, uh, could you address that? How how does a two-year-old, perhaps not very verbal, um, or a verbal, maybe not that easily understood. Mm-hmm. How does it, how, what on earth would lead a two-year-old to need treatment? And how does a two-year-old benefit from therapy for gosh sakes? Yeah, I think that's a great question and a, a great anecdote to say, hey, most of the population doesn't understand the zero to five development as much as I would like them to um, and understand that they are people just as much as you and I as adults, just with a little bit different focus. Um, and yes, I have been been given a lot of stares, especially when I explain what I do too. What? A toddler in therapy? What are you just doing? Playing? And lo and behold, yes, we are playing. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> we, are, we are playing and uh, processing what they need. So um, reasons for two-year-olds and, and young children, infants and toddlers to receive therapy are because of their brain development is rapidly changing, especially that zero to five, those pathways in the brain, those neuropathways are shaping and creating. And so they're gathering all this information about the world, about themselves, about their relationships um, that you know, when a, when something big happens, maybe a stressful event happens that can shift their perspective, uh, cause causing them to go into more of the fight flight or freeze response, um, being fearful of others, being more aggressive. Um, and so when I work with the young ones, two-year-olds, infants, toddlers, it is a lot of parent and child. So by having both together will work on that relationship and that security. Young children um, relate to their parents in such a way that they almost feel like they're part of them. You know, how my parent responds 
is how I will respond. We are the same person until you get, you know, older. And even in that three, four, five years old, that separation, um, but they can benefit because it can help increase their emotional vocabulary. Being able to say, you know, I am mad is really powerful instead of throwing a block across the, uh, across the room or biting another child's arm or, um, you know, saying I'm frustrated, I'm overwhelmed and knowing what to do with that information, such as looking for someone for help. You know, this age is, is very much relationship based. Um, and so by them, for them to learn how to regulate or calm themselves down, they have to rely on somebody else. And so by having that attachment really strong, uh, that they can learn to slowly calm themselves and calm their bodies to then be able to, to help in their development overall. That's cognitively, emotionally, socially. It's really important for children to have a strong base of uh, socio-emotional skills. So that's why I think, you know, mental health treatment is important for, for young children who need it. I'm going to go off on a question I didn't warn you about, so bear with me, but it feels like a nice uh, a lead in here. I was once uh, doing um, a presentation with a group of, in this case, they were all men who were court ordered because of domestic violence. And I was talking to them. They were, they all had infants um, newborns in the home. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to them about how infants experience the trauma of being in a home of violence. And it was very, I remember one of the, the men in particular, just all my kid does is sleep and poop and eat. There's no way what I did to my wife had a negative impact on my child and absolutely did not believe that children, young children, infants in this case, but young children had the ability to experience trauma in that way. Could you speak to that no, with what you know about the, the young population? Yeah, and I think I, I get that response quite frequently. There's no way. They were in the other room. They didn't hear anything. They didn't see anything even. They're too even little. They don't know. They, they don't know. They don't understand what's happening where in fact that they do. I think um, a great resource is the ghosts in the nursery. It's like an old, old resource, not super old, but it's a, it's a resource we use a lot with infant child, infant and toddler mental health about um, how the uh, impacts of domestic violence um, fear that just more energetically in the home and between the relationship between it, say parents, if there's domestic violence can impact that child's sense of security and safety, that predictability. Um, you know, if one parent is being hurt, uh, that also child will internalize it and say, if this person is being hurt, my caregiver is being hurt, is deemed bad, called these names, I must be bad too. Because they, especially infants, they relate to their caregiver for everything of how they're supposed to feel, um, how they're supposed to interact with the world, uh, getting their needs met. They might not get their needs met when domestic violence occurs. Thank you. A very good job for an off the cuff question. <laughs> I appreciate I'm that. I'm doing my best. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good. Mental health treatment in general can seem foreign or somehow mystifying to people, which in and of itself can be a barrier to accessing care. It's significantly easier to understand the drawing of blood, being referred for an x-ray or MRI, than it is to understand the psychotherapeutic process. While true across all mental health treatment, that becomes particularly true in the treatment of children, where play and art are common modalities. Unlike adults, 
Children and even adolescents lack the words and developmental maturity to engage in mental health treatment the way an adult might, sitting in a chair and discussing their struggles, feelings, and worries with a clinician. The U.S. Public Health Service acknowledges that it's vital that children receive empirically validated treatments and that these treatments be tailored to children's maturational needs. Standard talk therapy simply won't do that for the young children who need our care, which is where play and art come in. Play therapy is a form of treatment that helps children and families to express their emotions, improve their communication, and solve problems. It capitalizes on children's natural ability to express their feelings and resolve conflicts and trauma through play. The benefit of art and play therapy is that they capitalize on communication strategies that are innately natural to a child. They're appropriate to their developmental stage and can be incorporated into a multitude of theoretical orientations and adapted to a variety of presenting problems. Thankfully, empirical research also demonstrates that they are effective. Doctors D. Ray, Sue Bratton, Tammy Rhine and Leslie Jones wrote in the International Journal of Play Therapy that play therapy appeared effective across modality, age, gender, population, setting, and theoretical schools of thought. Additionally, positive play therapy outcomes were found to be greatest when there was parent involvement in treatment and an optimal number of sessions. Similarly, Drs. Leslie Eaton, Kimberly Doherty, and Rebecca Widrick write that art therapy uses creative expression to provide individuals with a safe outlet for expressing thoughts and emotions to successfully facilitate recovery from psychological distress. They look specifically at the use of art therapy at work with traumatized children and found that it was used successfully in a variety of contexts working with this population. Now, Sarah, talk, because you are, you work with the little ones and you are specifically an art therapist. Uh, You also do quite a lot of play therapy, of course. Uh, Talk about the concerns that a parent's, we've all heard this, Mm -hmm. that parents might have about your session is all you do is play. All you do is make art. Like, why am I coming here every week when all you're doing is playing? I can play with my kid. Is this something that you've experienced in your work, that sort of misunderstanding of the value of it because of your modality? Oh, I definitely have experienced this. Um, And how I prevent, I I do a more preventative model (laughs) before the parent says, all you're doing is playing or making art. I will meet with them. We'll go over their assessment and we make a plan. I let them know I'm, I use a lot of art and play. These are the ways that it is helpful, uh, such as, you know, play being the language of children. How can we expect a child to go into talk therapy at an adult cognitive level and and be able to process those challenging feelings, experiences, not having that much life experience, understanding the nuances of interactions, relationships um, in, in a verbal way. So what we need to do as clinicians or what I find is very helpful is going down to the, not down, but going to the child's cognitive level, which is through art, in play in their language and with parents who say all you're doing is art and and play i remind them of this and i invite them also into sessions um, when when appropriate uh, depending on age and um, where they are in treatment but inviting them and seeing the uh, the insights that their child has or the reenactments that in play and or the what they create in their art to really see, see your child is paying attention. Your child is aware of what happened. Your child is still working through, say, that trauma that, they, that they've experienced. Uh, children learn and process most of their life through either visual means or play. If you see an infant, they're mostly looking around the room, uh, of course, putting things in their mouth because they're little, <laughs> and that's another <laughs> way, but looking around the room, taking it all in, 
uh, to process this information. And then play being their language, you'll notice the same types of play happen over and over again. They're little scientists and, and they want to um, be able to fully understand and comprehend what they've seen, what they've experienced. So that's how I would explain it to parents. Um, and it's also a way to have children learn to regulate or calm themselves down as well, being able to take take those opportunities to play, to run, to, to play a drum, to use paints, to regulate and calm down before going back into talking about challenging emotions. Uh, I've had, I've had parents um, with me in, in a session and um, I was working with a child and they were going over their art that they made. And I was curious and asking my follow-up questions and it can sometimes see, be seen as interrogating. And that makes a lot of parents worried, uh, I believe, is, is this, what are you going to see in the art and play um, and investigating? So I also let them, the parents know, this is all for your child's processing. Um, but I still have parents who will walk away from treatment if I, if I give that and if they don't. Um, also, another thing that I've seen is children's behavior getting worse in play therapy and art therapy before getting better. And that's part of the process too. It's like opening that quote unquote wound to clean it out and to reheal it. You talked about sort of the questions you ask uh, about a child's uh, piece of art, for example. Could you sort of, I mean, I'm not going to role play being a two-year-old, but could you like tell us some of those questions? Like, let's say we're, we're looking at an artwork that a small child has done. What kinds of questions might you ask? What would your process be? Yeah, and I think for children, young children, I say questions, more inquiries. I, I do my best to avoid questioning because that can feel intimidating, more prompting. Tell me more about this. Um, I noticed that your face doesn't have a mouth. Can you tell me more about this? Um, it looks like your bear is really sad. Tell me more about this. That I think that's <laughs> my phrase, um, but it also depends. Or tell me a story about this character. Where do they live? Um, uh, what brought them here today? Who are their friends? So it becomes more about the art making and less about them. Though I'll get more information about them. And I rely a lot on parents to be able to understand what is being created as well. So gathering information from the parents of what's, what's your family dynamic? Uh, what were the details in the trauma? Um, how are they doing at school so that I avoid, I, I'm saying avoiding and interpreting, though I will have a, a thought or be curious about kind of an, an interpretation in, in a sense of just based off my own implicit bias, what I understand, this is what I think it means. But I won't put a label and say that's what it is definitively because I'm also not the child. Okay. So can you explain for the listeners? Um, you kind of did a little bit, but mm -hmm. you know, I think I give tours of our uh, Long Beach building all the time to, mm -hmm. to lay people, um, donors, interested community members. And I show them our, 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 our um, play therapy rooms. And I think most people understand that with children, play is a more effective modality than sitting them in a chair and saying, tell me what you think and feel. Um, mm -hmm. But it still seems somewhat mystical and magical. Um, how does it work? How does play therapy or art therapy work? How is it different from just the simple play they do all the time? Right. I think that's a great question. Uh, there are definitely overlaps in, you know, their daily play and then therapeutic play. 
Um, you know, you see, I watch the kids out in the playground here. They're either running on the slide, maybe in dramatic play, dressing up, pretending to be characters, parallel play sitting next to each other and using the same materials, but maybe not necessarily collaborating. I think a big difference between a child's daily play with others is the space in creating that therapeutic environment um, and a place that can be contained where the play that might be seen as taboo, inappropriate, such as aggression, um, can be worked through. And also by having a therapist in the space with them, it could, could provides containment to be able to explore some of those more challenging emotions and, and feelings. Um, teachers and parents may witness or see uh, trauma play, but maybe not know what it is and how to respond. So as a play and art therapist is trained to be able to have those follow-up conversations and in play, you're playing with them too. You allow them to take the control of the session. And um, I, I like this. This was a really good tool that I've seen be very helpful is the, the stage whisper. So say me and a child are playing with a toy um, or I think a good example is children like to feed people. So they'll feed me and I'll do a side whisper uh, kind of to allude that this isn't the play. I need your help. I need your, your response. So what should, do I like this food? Is it good? And they'll say, no, you know, typically we, when we eat the food kids give us, we go, mm, so delicious. But if they're instructed, instructing you to say, no, it's, it's not good. And you, in, and you enact that there's a lot more validation of their experience and their feeling, um, and potentially a reminder a, a trauma in, in the sense that maybe something happened with the food or not getting enough food. There, there are many things that you have to consider when, when play, but that's an example. I think of how play is different. It's the language that children use. So we try to support by containing the space and making it therapeutic and doing, you know, play fighting uh, and, and exploring um, and not telling or avoiding telling them, no, don't do that. We don't play like this because mm -hmm. that can be invalidating. Go ahead. How do you know that you're not like, as an example, you mentioned the, oh, you drew your face here. I noticed you didn't put a mouth and, mm -hmm. you know, for us as therapists, that's, oh, there's a secret. There's something, you know, you don't feel like you have a voice, like all the right. possible interpretations. How do yes. you know, you know, even Freud said sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Um, mm -hmm. And we know he ended up being wrong about a lot of things, but he, <laughs> <laughs> but even he said that. So how do you know mm -hmm. it's just the kids too and didn't put a mouth on? Like, how do oh, you know yes. you're not laying a meaning on something that, uh, was just, that it I was think, just a cigar. Right. Right. That it, this is just what I made. And that happens a lot too. I think the biggest, um, the biggest indicator of knowing that is, is it skill? Is it the mastery? Can they, do they just draw a face like this over and over again? Or do we notice that, um, they're doing this intentionally. Children are the first to let you know when you're wrong. <laughs> so, you know, definitely in the play or art, if you give an interpretation or make a statement, they say, no, you know, no, Sarah, that's not right. They're the first <laughs> ones to tell you. So I think I rely on their instinct and, and what they're sharing. Um, but yes, I think it can be a little difficult to, to, to tell the difference uh, on occasion. That's what the therapeutic relationship is for, continuing to see it. You can't, you know, just a one-off drawing. They could have watched uh, Power Rangers and, and drew something that had, you know, a violent sword. I haven't watched Power Rangers in a while, so I don't know if they use weapons, but, <laughs> um, you know, if they are there, what media are they taking in? That's also a big reason why I invite the parents and, and talk with the parents to understand what kind of movies are they watching? 
Um, what did they recently see? You know, I had a child reenact a car crash um, with with play over and over again, and and um, that parent was saying uh, that you know they were in. Um, or they saw that happen. It didn't happen to them, but they witnessed it. So it's really taking in that information. My objective in in working with art therapy is not to interpret, but stay curious. I do have my own implicit bias. Um, what information that I have been given, trying to put the pieces together in this puzzle. Um, and what we have noticed as especially in children in play and art, they'll repeat the same drawings and themes. And when we see a change or something, a change in play, maybe a different toy, or maybe the character's mood has changed, we'll also tend to see a change in behavior at home and at school um, because children have processed through their own means, their their own language. Um, and like you said earlier, I, I try not to, in too much of my interpretation, I am looking for certain things that, that I might be curious about. Hmm, I noticed this red circle is way in the corner. Can you tell me more about that? Um, shapes, colors, and sometimes it's just energy, right? The scribble, um, but what does that mean for them to, to get that out? I avoid pathologizing when I see an image that might be, or what a parent or a teacher might bring to me of something that might be really violent. I need more information than that drawing. Gotcha. That makes sense. You know, it's it's clear, Sarah, when you talk, uh, the affection you have for these little ones. Um, I can, you know, I have the benefit. I can see your face as you're talking as well, but you light up. It's clear the affection you feel for them. And, you know, of all the, the disciplines, all the clinical uh, routes you could have taken, you chose to be an art therapist. Uh, mm -hmm. What is it that you find so meaningful um, in this modality as a clinician? that you chose that route, that extra training to be specifically an art therapist? Yes. Uh, interesting, um, interesting path for me because uh, before going into the field of mental health specifically, uh, I was a dancer and an artist. So I was thinking a lot about how I wanted to use those um, modalities like art and uh, art and dance specifically at that time to impact people more interpersonally, one-on-one. -on -one. I loved performing, but there was something in me that said I needed to do a little bit more. I want to work with these, with ch children more at the, especially, especially at that time. Um, and I was a, a preschool teacher as well. So there's, there's a little bit of the influence of I was working with young children and I had a big background in the arts. I learned about this field of art therapy and luckily I went to a, a wonderful program to be able to get the marriage family therapy and specializing in art therapy because I think it's so innate in me of how I express myself and understand. Um, I trip over words. I don't always feel like I have the right words or articulate exactly what I mean. So that's why art and dance have been such a big part. And that's how I relate to these children so much as well. Cause you can see the energy, you can see the insight that they have through this medium. Um, and so I followed through on that and I'm learning and I have learned so much more what art therapy men, means from when I initially started. And it's been wonderful to, to be able to hear from other art therapists, their theories and, and their maybe focus, just like any mental health, other theoretical orientations, there's theoretical, different theoretical orientations and art therapy as well. And I think find that very exciting. Hmm. Uh, Thank yeah. you. Mm -hmm. Is there, do you have a, a successful case study you could briefly share with us, you know, ideally treating a little one? 
I do. I do. I was working with this young child. He was about two, maybe younger. Um, and they had some trauma history. Uh, and, you know, that parent shared with me and that teacher shared with me very difficult in transitions, big tantrums that appeared, um, what they would say more out of proportion or not quite developmentally appropriate in, in the sense that they've lasted a really long time. Um, the frequency, they happened very often. This child also had a delay in speech. So I was working with both the parent and child with, in addition to providing parenting skills and communication uh, techniques, I had them together in the room um, with art supplies. And that was the communication techniques for the parents used in joining the child in art making. A lot of art therapists, when they provide an intervention or a directive, think about what material am I going to use? The materials actually play a big part in how you want the client or the child to be able to create. So knowing that he had a hard, difficult with verbalization and using his words, um, and that can also be, you know, he had a developmental delay in language. I also wanted to provide a more expressive medium. So instead of using things that are what we would call structured, like pencils or collage images, I wanted to use materials that were like paint or clay that had a little more uh, give and expression. And the first time I heard this in school, I was like, I don't, I don't know about that. I need to think about this. This seems not true. Um, but then you, you see it in action and how much emotion came out of his face, happiness, uh, laughter. Um, and what I've also noticed, I was working with adults and transitional age youth, uh, this also occurred as well when we gave them clay. They almost, I don't want to say regressed in behavior because that's not the right word, but they became a lot more laughter expressive uh, because it just, it, it allows for that, elicits that. Anyway, for this child, I had the mother and him work with paint. He had really great fine motor skills. So that was really interesting to watch too, him being able to manipulate paint because that can be very difficult for two. But I saw him creating, you know, smiley faces and looking at his mom and laughing, angry faces um, and just continuing week after week, coming in using art and providing that moment of attachment and attunement with the mother and child so that the mother can better, you know, be attentive for, to this child, but also for the child to be more expressive and be able to share what he needs from his, his parent, his caregiver. And after some time, you know, the parent was informing me that the tantrums have decreased. The teachers have noticed that as well. And I think that's a, a success story for me. Um, seeing it from beginning, beginning, middle to end and, and watching how the process of art making, as opposed to the content of the mm -hmm. actual image, the process of art making with the parent and child together in the therapeutic space really benefited this child, um, and his relationships. I mean, I think that's a really important point. I saw so many times that in some ways doing play therapy with a child and a parent, um, I was teaching the parent how to play with the child because mm -hmm. um, maybe nobody ever played with them. And just even just the process of teaching how to attentively play uh, with the child was so meaningful in that in that caregiver relationship. So last question here, I always try to end on a bright note. Um, so everybody gets this question more or less. You serve a difficult population. They're very young children and with very high levels of trauma. Um, are there unexpected bright sides to your work or what, what gives you hope? How do you not get all crusty and burnt out and jaded, <laughs> cynical, because clearly you're none of those things. So how do you, oh, you. retain your hope? 
I think this is the most hopeful population for me uh, because intervening early, like you were saying earlier about, you know, that ad adaptive behavior of being loud, needing to get their needs met, throwing things, saying, I'm here, this, this has happened to me, I need some, I need help in an unconscious way. Um, it is hard to hear the stories uh, from, you know, social workers and, and parents it, that can, that can get emotionally heavy. But what I've noticed that the most with these young children is the amount of change that can happen with just the shift in relationship in, in their play. To me, they're the ones that since they're so young and you're able to, to, to mold them just a little bit more and just a little bit quicker. If you have that buy-in from the, the caregiver as well. Uh, so that gives me the most hope is though we see these really big behaviors, biting, spitting, cursing, throwing things, um, we're able to also see their insight through play, their insight in just small words here and there, if they're verbal, their interactions with their, their peers that bring a smile to my face. Um, knowing that, you know, they'll, they might be moments, but Hey, look at that moment right there. They were able to interact and play. Look at that hug that they gave their caregiver that they may have not given them, you know, two months ago. So that's what brings me the most hope is the amount of hope in these young children that they yeah. share and give to the world already. Just who they are and the change mm -hmm. you get to see in them there. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you very much for sharing your insights with us today as a clinician with specialized training in art and play therapies, working with our littlest ones. Uh, we've learned so much today and perhaps a child will access treatment as a result of our conversations. And that would be a really good outcome. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. In My Backyard is brought to you by the Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Tricia Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262. 5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.